Welcome to the third edition of News of the Church. It's the 3rd of December, 2023, and the first Sunday of Advent, beginning a new liturgical year. Some time ago, I saw a movie called News of the World in which, years after the Civil War, a former Confederate officer ekes out a living going about reading to people who pay a dime ahead various newspaper stories from all over. The idea caught my imagination, and here I am, a gazetteer. Today's edition might be a little bit longer because there are so many wonderful things. What to begin with? I have here my copy of George Cardinal Pell's Prison Journal, Volume 3. Well, you all know what happened to Cardinal Pell. But uh, his prison journals are marvelous. There are three volumes of them put out by Ignatius Press. And so, because it's Advent, I wanted to check out what he had to say about Advent. And I was torn between reading the entry for, actually today, the 3rd of December, but I opted instead for the 1st of December, which happened to be the first Sunday of Advent. The liturgical year is a wonderful invention, which the Catholic Church took over from the Jews and adapted to Christian teaching. Like other Australians, I grew up with the secular holidays of Christmas and Easter, and always participated in their religious celebration. I took the yearly cycle somewhat for granted, although increasingly I understood and loved it better. However, I have a new and deeper appreciation for Lent and Easter, Pentecost, Advent and Christmas, and even ordinary time, as they give structure and purpose to my quiet life in jail. Jewish and Christian history is going somewhere and has a beginning with the creation and then Adam and Eve. The Jews are still waiting for the promised Messiah, whom we recognize in Christ, who will come again as judge in the end times. Christians don't believe in an everlasting cycle of return, in an afterlife of reincarnations on earth. One can see here another foundation, other than a rational God, for the theories of the Big Bang, evolution, and even the mythology of progress, a mirage of inevitable and universal progress, which was exploded again in the crimes of the 20th century. But the world has seen spectacular advances, not universal, in longevity and health, literacy, less hunger, and fewer famines on every continent. Christians have escaped from the Western literature's pessimism that there is nothing new under the sun as we more move toward the final judgment, and the new heaven and the new earth. In the yearly cycle of feasts, we celebrate what has been achieved by God's people and look forward in hope. I'll just pause here and skip a little bit. <clears throat> I'm going to go over to the uh, today's entry for the 3rd of December. Tuesday, 3 December, 2019. After turning on the television, I sat down to a breakfast of toast, butter, and jam with a half liter of milk to find that Tony Abbott's visit to Cardinal Pell was headline news. Channel 7 continues to use my title, unlike the ABC, which prefers the terms disgraced and convicted pedophile. The world of today's media is always on the move with an astounding and almost instantaneous outreach. 
One of my U.S. correspondents told me how she had heard of my work in the jail garden. And uh, jumping up to another point here, an uneventful hour in the gymnasium, although it took me a while to achieve an unbroken series of a hundred shots on my backhand and forehand at the ping-pong, sped up the treadmill for a bit longer. Anyway, this is a little bit of a little taste of the prison journal of Cardinal Pell. Uh, next, I have a tweet, if that's what they're still called, from the 30th of November by the wonderful writer Anthony Esselin. Uh, if you haven't seen his translation of Dante's Divine Comedy, it's really very good. And he has uh, um, some wonderful books out. I have long wondered why teachers choose for middle schoolers and beyond many of the glummest, most miserable, and most hopeless works of literature to read. Lord of the Flies, I believe, is a great novel. But is that what you want your young person's head full of? especially these days when he's getting so little of the natural world to fill his lungs and his imagination. And it's a downhill slide from Golding's novel. At least Golding isn't pushing a hard political agenda. He keeps most, not all, of his politics to himself. Youth is eminently a time of expansiveness, not contradiction. When you look upon the world and see vistas opening everywhere, sure, it's partly the illusion of newness, but it is not only that. Huckleberry Finn glances darkly at human nature, and Mark Twain's work would grow darker, darker still, but there was the grand river and its inherent adventure, and the powerful moral center embodied in Jim, the runaway slave. And you may say what you will about Kipling's colonialism, but the fact remains that he loved India deeply, and was probably more at home there than anywhere in the world. And in that great road novel, Kim, we feel the greatness of that vast and ancient land and its people. Who are the great poets of youth? Tennyson, certainly, Keats, Wordsworth, Longfellow, Coleridge, perhaps, Shelley, though you want to throw a brick at his head, Blake, Herrick, quite a lot of Browning. Those in English, and no doubt many others I'm not thinking of. But we are raising young people who are afraid to be seen having innocent fun, who not only cannot sing love songs, they would be ashamed to sing them, but not ashamed to boast to their friends of what foul things they had seen online. Yet the innocent things are true, and the grubby and nasty things are the distortions. And we should always remember that there is a sentimentalism of evil as well as of good. Kitsch with arsenic. The wonderful Benedictine nuns, the Benedictines of Mary, Queen of Apostles, Gower Abbey, I call it, because it's at Gower, Missouri. They send out a newsletter, and I have their fall 2023 newsletter here. Um, they are they have so many vocations, they're founding daughter houses now. Well, anyway, here's Mother Abbess's, Abbess Cecilia's uh, note. 
Dear family, friends, and benefactors, We are bursting with news since you last heard from us in the early summer. We have hosted a priestly ordination, held our annual community retreat, were visited by the relic of St. Jude the Apostle, had three solemn professions, seven investitures, three first professions, and the entrances of nine candidates at the Abbey and four at Ava, 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 Missouri. I think it's Ava, not Ava. Missouri is where they have a, a daughter house. For the first time in our history, we are actually having to turn away vocations. Six applicants are now waiting until next year to enter, at which point, God willing, we will have more room. That room will come with the completion of the construction of our daughter house in Eva. We are about halfway there, both with construction and in paying the monthly bills that must needs accompany it. We have put our entire trust in God and his dear foster father, St. Joseph, for this entire project, and will continue to do so for the next ten months, knowing that souls will be inspired with great generosity to bring this beautiful house of prayer to completion. As you read these words, we humbly ask that you consider what our Lord might be asking you to contribute towards this worthy end. How pleased he is with those who support and assist his brides. We hope you enjoy the many pictures of all our special events, along with a page of more everyday things. We have many talented artists and cartoonists in our monasteries, and so feature in this issue some drawings from one of our novices. We close with a promise of prayer for each and every one of you, to whom we owe so much in the sustaining of our monastic life. May the Lord continue to provide for all your needs and show you his love, keeping you all always tucked close beneath the mantle of our loving mother. In the merciful heart of her son, Mother Cecilia OSB. And indeed, they're just turning here. I have photos of the ordination to the priesthood that they had. And the first professions, look at all that black and white. And uh, so many, so many nuns. And uh, the solemn profession of the sisters. And um, here's an advertisement, a flying, a flyer for their Christmas cards. They're selling Christmas cards. And here is, and here's some of the artwork. And um, it really is really quite sweet. And um, uh, photos of the construction at uh, their daughter house. Good heavens, this place is going to be big. So they have really, it's really quite a, a wonderful thing to see. I get these newsletters from Benedictines. I get the one from Norcha and from Le Baru and uh, from Silverstream. And it's nice to keep up on what they're doing. The Wanderer is a faithful Catholic newspaper um, going back uh, very long and um, started out in German, in St. Paul, a lot of the people involved in it. And uh, then the remnant that split off from the Wanderer came out of my home parish in St. Paul, uh, St. Agnes. In any event, in this issue, the this is 16th of November. It's really odd. The other day I got two issues at the same time. You know, I anyway, and of course they were a week apart. But this is from 16 November, and it's something written by Brian, Father Brian Harrison, who is a very intelligent um, uh, priest who was a professor for many years in Puerto Rico. I think he may be in Chicago right now. I'm not quite sure. Many years ago, I was at I was actually at his ordination in Rome. He. Uh, like I was ordained by John Paul II. 
The headline is, Good News at Last, Numbers of Orthodox Priests Increasing. And he doesn't mean Eastern Orthodox here. The Catholic News Agency article by Jonah McCowan, featured on page one, brings some encouraging news for Orthodox Catholics. A similar survey of Australian priests would probably produce broadly similar results. Uh, Brian Harrison, I believe, if I remember correctly, is Australian uh, in origin. It appears that the liberal-slash-progressive National Council of Priests, after half a century or more of holding annual conferences, has been forced to suspend them because of severely declining membership. No young priests are joining the organization. The Australian Confraternity for Catholic Clergy, however, which began in 1985 as an orthodox alternative to the NCP, carries on with annual conferences and includes quite a few younger priests. The overall picture is far from rosy, of course. Our secularized Western culture, increasingly hostile to traditional Christianity, especially when it comes to moral issues, has deeply penetrated many of our families and schools, weakening or wiping out the childhood faith of many young Catholics. It's interesting, they'll just stop, you know, where the Benedictines of Mary have got lots of vocations, and uh, here's something also that connects to what I was reading, you know, from Anthony Esselin. Anyway, but there's a faithful remnant from whom the Church's future leadership is being drawn in terms of priestly and religious vocations. This American survey is further confirmation of the general picture that in Western countries the Catholic Church is becoming a lot smaller, but also more committed and faithful to the traditional teachings and spirituality handed down from Christ and the Apostles. Part 1 of the survey, released last October, found that despite relatively high levels of personal well-being and fulfillment among priests as a whole, a significant percentage of priests have issues with burnout, distrust in their bishop, and fears of being falsely accused of misconduct. Of greatest importance is that this new November report highlights several themes which have emerged from closer analysis of the quantitative data as well as careful study of the qualitative data collected from the one-on-one -on -one interviews with priests. The study used survey responses from 3,516 priests across 191 dioceses and eparchies in the United States. Of special note, the researchers assert that self-described liberal or progressive priests have all but disappeared from the youngest cohorts of priests, and that priests describing themselves as conservative-slash-orthodox reached more than 80% among those ordained after 2020. Sticking to the Wanderer, but the November 23rd edition, I find this. At Connecticut Elementary School, Satanic Temple announces launch of After School Satan Club. This is written by Daniel Payne. Salem Mass. <laughs> Appropriate. The Satanic Temple said this month that it is launching an After School Satan Club, ASSC, at a Connecticut elementary school, months after a federal judge ruled that a middle school in Pennsylvania had to accommodate a similar club. 
The Satanic Temple is a political activist group that protects religious symbolism in public spaces. In spite of its name, according to its website, it denies the existence of both God and Satan. The group launched its After School Satan program in 2016. The organization touts the initiative as an alternative to religious after-school programs. The organization said on its Instagram account last week that the program is coming to Connecticut. The state's first ASSC will launch on December 1st at Lebanon Elementary School in just a few weeks, the group said. The ASSC volunteers are ready to create a fun and inviting place for students to learn and make new friends. You know, the organization said on the Instagram post that the Satanic Temple is a non-theistic religion that views Satan as a literary figure who represents a metaphorical construct of rejecting tyranny and championing the human mind and spirit. I think they're in for a surprise. The club does not attempt to convert children to any religious ideology, the Post said. Oh no, they're just called the After School Satan Club. The group listed science projects, community service projects, puzzles and games, and snacks as part of the club's offerings. It sounds very much like what will be on the menu in Hill. Snacks, puzzles and games. Lebanon Elementary School did not respond to a request for comment about the club on Tuesday morning, November 14th. The new club's launch comes several months after a federal judge in Pennsylvania ruled that the Satanic Temple must be allowed to hold one of its after-school clubs in a public middle school in Pennsylvania's Saucon Valley School District. The lawsuit had been brought on behalf of the Satanic Temple by the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU of Pennsylvania, and Dick Church LLP after the school district had rescinded its approval of the group's meeting, claiming the group had violated the district's signage policies. In a handbook linked on its website, the Satanic Temple says its clubs meet at select public schools already hosting other religious clubs. Trained educators provide activities and learning opportunities, which students are free to engage in, the document says, or they may opt to explore other interests that may be aided by available resources. Well, there you have it. The After School Satan Club. On a cheerier note, I have the December newsletter of the Latin Mass Society in England. And um, some of these items here might be a little dated, but they tell you what's going on. I'll just look through here and read the interesting things. Catholic Military Association Requiem Mass. On the 29th of November, the Latin Mass Society have helped organize the Catholic Military Association's Solemn Requiem Mass that was in Warwick Street in London. The music was Palestrina's Requiem. And here's another thing. They had the Bird Festival of Sacred Music. That's, of course, William Bird, B-Y-R-D, marking the 400th anniversary of the death of the Renaissance composer William Bird, concludes at Corpus Christi Maiden Lane on Monday, 11 December, at 6.30 p.m. This will be the Mass of St. Damascus, it says, I think they mean Damascus, with music from the Southwell Consort. 
and let's see. They are being, the festival mass is taking place at Corpus Christi Maiden Lane. Beautiful church. They did a fantastic restoration there. Father Robbins, uh, Robinson, the pastor, is really very much to be praised. They're, they're going to be live streamed and uh, available online. Let's see what else the newsletter has. Ah, a sung requiem mass will be held to mark the year since the death of Pope Benedict XVI. That'll be also at Corpus Christi Maiden Lane. Palestrina's Requiem will be sung. That'll be on the 8th of January. The Guild of St. Clair. Now, this is a really interesting group. They get together and they make uh, vestments and they do all sorts of things like needlework. Ah, as a matter of fact, they talk about it. The 16th of March. 2024, the Guild of St. Clair is collaborating with the Royal School of Needlework to provide a special one-day course making a quarter-scale dalmatic with the traditional hand construction techniques. Please see here for further information. This is something from the July-August 2023 number of the Angelus, which is the publication of the SSPX in English. It's published in St. Mary's, Kansas. That's where they had that magnificent uh, new church built. Um, I, this caught my interest because it deals with sonnets, and I very much like sonnets. Uh, during COVID, uh, at the request of a, a reader, I decided to read a sonnet a day, a Shakespeare sonnet a day, and I went through all of them, posted them on, posted them online. Just me reading and commentary, commenting a little bit on Shakespeare's sonnets. Anyway, this is about sonnets. So what do we have here? City Under Siege, Sonnets and Other Verse by Mark Amoroz. I think that's how his name is pronounced. A-M-O-R-O-S-E. If I were Italian, I'd say Amarose, but probably it's probably Mark Amarose. Reviewed by Brendan D. King. So this is a book, and it starts out with the title Annibale Bunini by Mark Amarose. In Rome, they should have known him by his name, the enemy descending with his brutes. But to our guardian's eternal shame, the harried faithful know him by his fruits. In his 2019 essay, Beauty in the Face of Indifference, which was prompted by the reading of Dana Joya's The Catholic Writer Today and other essays, Joseph Pierce lamented, The renewal of Catholic liturgy is happening before our very eyes through the efforts of, very, of many very good Catholic writers. The problem is that, I, that our eyes are closed, we do not see the glorious fruits of this literary revival because we are not looking for it. Our eyes are elsewhere, focusing on things far less worthy of our attention. As Mr. Joya says, the work of writers matters very little unless it is recognized and supported by a community of critics, educators, journalists, and readers. Why are works of contemporary Catholic literature not being critiqued in the Catholic media? Why are they not being taught in Catholic schools and colleges? And, most of all, why are they not being read? 
We'll just step out for a second. This dovetails with what Anthony Esselin was talking about. Okay, going back, going on now. The answer to these questions, as far as traditional Catholics are concerned, is actually quite unnerving. There is not only a deeply ingrained distrust of living writers, but also, to paraphrase what Solzhenitsyn famously said about the American secular media, in-depth analysis of a problem is anathema to the traditional Catholic press. It is contrary to its nature. The press merely picks out sensational formulas. Well, gosh, I hope that's not what I'm doing. Well, reading from newsletters of monasteries and so forth is pretty sensational. Uh, going on. Therefore, we see in the traditionalist Catholic press an extremely strong belief in the age-old hacksaw, raise hell and sell newspapers. With this in mind, they seek to keep their traditionalist Catholic readers perpetually enraged and forever trapped in a deeply ingrained sense of eternal victimhood. What is worse, negative reviews, which warn traditionalists away from bad books, music, and films, are far more prevalent than reviews which instead point their readers towards more worthwhile alternatives. There is clearly considerable financial profit in Bergoglio bashing, paranoia, and negativity, or articles filled with all three would not continue to dominate the traditionalist press. But when one considers that traditional Catholics have before them, before themselves the task of rebuilding an entire civilization, pretending that fellow traditionalists who seek to re-evangelize the culture through literature and the arts do not exist, provides a rotten and unstable foundation. For this reason, this essay will focus upon positively reviewing the latest collection by Marc Amaroz, who Joseph Pierce named as one of the best living Catholic American Catholic poets in the above-quoted essay. The title of Marc Amaroz's collection, City Under Siege, is drawn from an enclosed sonnet which pays tribute to St. Joan of Arc. But it also contains a pun, as it draws attention to the fact that Western civilization, which St. Augustine famously termed the City of God, and which is the creation of the Catholic Church, is now and always has been under siege from the culture of death. Amaro's choices of poetic themes and subjects, which always seems to expand upon the themes of the collection's title, are carefully thought out and erudite, which is a priceless skill in a broken culture which, as Dana Joya's recently as Dana Joya recently reminded us, is fast becoming an ignorant culture. Even more importantly, the whole collection alternates irate poems filled with ironic and cutting cultural criticism with poems revealing light and even hope. A sonnet comparing the modern horrors of legalized abortion with the pervasive child sacrifice in ancient Carthage, is followed by a sonnet which expresses the joy that Amaroz and his wife felt upon seeing their unborn daughter for the first time in an ultrasound. Sonnets about the persecution experienced by Catholics under the domination of Arian heresy, President Plutarco Caes, or the House of Tudor, are alternated with sonnets that remind us that as long as even a few traditional Catholics are left, the culture of death has not won. It is often said that those who will not learn history are doomed to repeat its mistakes. 
it is just as often said that those who do learn history are doomed to stand by helpless and watch as everyone else repeats its mistakes. Amaro's, however, deserves our gratitude for reminding us that we do not live in the first age that the culture of death has seemingly won, and that we almost certainly are not living in the last such age either. Christian civilization is now, and always has been, on the verge of collapse, and has been rebuilt over and over again from the ashes. This is because, as G. K. Chesterton reminds us, we as Christians pray to a God who knows all too well the way into the grave and back out of it again. The last word is best left to Amaros himself. Gates of Hell Napoleon has come. The sentries sound the tocsin. Battlefields are strewn with dead. The Pope is doomed. But what is this? Like lead, the revolution's guns fall to the ground. Pius the Last was only the beginning. Six namesakes later, Stalin looks and sneers at Peter's might, then Stalin disappears. Now ask the latest tyrant, who is winning? On Cephas Petros, Peter, on this rock I build my church. Forever to remain I give this promise pestilence, and pain will rack her, but she will withstand each shock. And when it seems most certain she will fail, then most the gates of hell shall not prevail. I have a growing stack of things to read here. Um, so many things that I'd really, really enjoy to read. But um, I also don't want to extend this too long. Let's keep this, keep this nice and dense. Uh, if you have some ideas about items, uh, you could send them along uh, to my email. That's frz, frz at wdtprs.com that's whiskey delta tango papa romeo sierra.com and i hope that you'll pray for me i will for you uh, making these little gazettes is kind of fun and i hope you find uh, them amusing until next time god bless you